0: Welcome everyone to episode 77 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew, and in today's episode, we're going to be hearing about the night stalker, Richard Ramirez. But first, a bit of news. Earlier this week, I reached 50,000 total plays on this podcast, and I just want to say thank you to all of you for listening, whether this is your first episode or your 77th. Thank you so much for coming back week after week and listening to the stories. Now let's just get right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. this story is a little graphic, so listener discretion is advised. Richard Ramirez, dubbed the Night Stalker, the Valley intruder as his attacks were first clustered in the San Gabriel Valley and the walk-in killer, was an American serial killer and sex offender whose crime spree took place in California between June 1984 and August 1985. He was convicted and sentenced to death in 1989. Richard's childhood is considered an influence on his crimes. Frequently abused by his father, Ramirez began developing gruesome and macabre interests in his early and mid-teens from his older cousin Miguel Ramirez, who also taught him some of the military skills that he would use during his year-long killing spree. Ramirez also cultivated a strong interest in Satanism and the occult. By the time that he had left his home in Texas and moved to California at the age of 22, he had begun frequently using cocaine. Ramirez would often commit burglaries to support his drug addiction, many of which were later frequently accompanied by murders, attempted murders, rapes, attempted rapes, and assaults. Richard's highly publicized home invasion and murder spree terrorized the residents of Greater Los Angeles and later the San Francisco Bay Area over the course of 14 months. However, his first known murder occurred as early as April 1984. This crime was not connected to Ramirez nor was it known to be his doing until 2009. Ramirez used a wide variety of weapons and different murder methods including handguns, various types of knives, a machete, a tire iron, and a claw hammer. He punched, pistol whipped, and strangled many of his victims, both with his hands and in one instance a ligature, stomped at least one victim to death in her sleep, and tortured another victim by shocking her with a live electrical cord. Ramirez also frequently enjoyed degrading and humiliating his victims especially those who survived his attacks or whom he explicitly decided not to kill, by forcing them to profess that they loved Satan or telling them to swear on Satan that there was no more valuables left in their homes he had broken into and burglarized. In 1989, Richard was convicted of 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. The judge, who upheld Ramirez's 19 death sentences, remarked that his deeds exhibited cruelty, callousness, and viciousness beyond any human understanding. Ramirez never expressed any remorse for any of his crimes. Richard was born in El Paso, Texas on February 28, 1960 to Julian and Mercedes Ramirez the youngest of their five children. His father, Julian, a Mexican national and former policeman who often excuse me, who later became a laborer on the Atachison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway, was an alcoholic who was prone to fits of anger that often resulted in physical abuse towards his wife and children. Richard would begin smoking marijuana and drinking alcohol at the age of ten. As a 12-year-old, Richard, or Richie as he was known to his family, was strongly influenced by his older cousin Miguel, a decorated Green Beret combat veteran who himself had already become a serial killer and a rapist during his time in the United States Army in the Vietnam War. Mike often boasted of his brutal war crimes, and he shared Polaroid photos with Richard showing Vietnamese women who he had raped, murdered, and dismembered or decapitated. Richard would later state, while incarcerated, that he was fascinated rather than repulsed by the images and stories Mike shared with him. Mike taught his young cousin some of his military skills, such as killing with stealth and effectively staying hidden in the dark, especially at night. Around this time, Richard began to seek escape from his father's violent temper by sleeping in a local cemetery. Richard was present on May 4th, 1973, when Mike fatally shot his wife, Jessie, in the face with a handgun during a domestic argument. Like the graphic photos and stories of his cousin's war crimes in Vietnam, Ramirez would later similarly remark that witnessing the murder was not traumatic for him in any traditional sense, but rather a subject of fascination. After the shooting, Richard became sullen and withdrawn from his family and peers. Mike was later found not guilty of Jesse's murder by reason of insanity with the shooting attributed to post-traumatic stress disorder from his service in Vietnam he was confined for several years in the Texas State Mental Hospital shortly after the shooting Richard moved in with his older sister Ruth and her husband Roberto an obsessive peeping Tom who took Richard along on his nocturnal exploits after Mike was released from the mental hospital in 1977 he sometimes accompanied Richard and Roberto on these voyeuristic walks spying on women in the nearby areas through their windows. By the time Richard had turned 14 in early 1974, he began using LSD frequently. He and Mike would then resume bonding over their shared use of drugs and alcohol. It was during this period that Richard began to cultivate an interest in Satanism and the occult. When he reached adolescence, Richard Ramirez began to meld his birth burgunding sexual fantasies with graphic violence, including forced bondage, murder, mutilation, and rape. While still in school, he took a job at a local Holiday Inn, and he used his master, master key to rob sleeping patrons. On at least one occasion, Ramirez molested two children in an elevator at the hotel, but he was never reported or prosecuted for this crime. His employment ended abruptly after Ramirez attempted to rape a woman in her hotel room and was caught in the act by the victim's husband. Although the husband beat Ramirez at the scene, criminal charges were dropped when the couple, who lived out of state, declined to return to Texas to testify against him. Richard would then drop out of Jefferson High School in the ninth grade. In 1982, at the age of 22, he moved to and settled permanently in California. It was around this time that Ramirez began to use cocaine, which quickly became his substance of choice and began to commit theft and burglaries to procure money for sustaining his addiction. He lived nomadically between San Francisco and Los Angeles during the time prior to his incarceration. He would frequently travel between the northern and southern areas of California both before and during his year-long crime spree. On April 10, 1984, Ramirez murdered Mei Luang, a 9-year-old Chinese-American girl, in the basement of his apartment building in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. Luang was with her 8-year-old brother and looking for a lost $1 bill when Ramirez approached the girl and told her to follow him into the basement to find it. Once they were in the basement, Ramirez beat, strangled, and raped long before stabbing her to death with a switchblade, hanging her partially nude body from a pipe by her blouse. The killing was not linked to Ramirez until 2009, when his DNA was matched to a sample obtained at the crime scene. In 2016, officials disclosed evidence of a second suspect, identified through another DNA sample retrieved from the scene, who is believed to have been present at the murder. Authorities have not publicly identified the suspect, described as being a juvenile at the time, and have not brought charges due to the lack of evidence. On June 28, 1984, 79-year-old Jenny Vincow was found murdered in her apartment in Glassell She had been stabbed repeatedly in the head, neck, and chest while asleep in her bed, and her throat slashed so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. Ramirez's fingerprint was found on a mesh screen that he removed to gain access through an open window. This Ramirez's second known murder established his pattern of breaking into homes, committing particularly vicious murders and frequently burglarizing his victims either before or after killing them, which was mainly to support his cocaine addiction and to pay his rent. On March 17, 1985, Ramirez attacked 22-year-old Maria Hernandez outside of her home in Rosemead, California, shooting her in the face with a 22 caliber handgun after she pulled into her garage. She survived when the bullet ricocheted off the keys that she held in her hand and she lifted them to protect herself. Hernandez played dead until Ramirez left the scene. Inside the house, her roommate, Dale Yoshi Okazaki, aged 34, heard the gunshot, and he ducked behind a counter when she ducked behind a counter when she saw Ramirez enter the kitchen. When she raised her head to get a look at what had happened. She was shot once in the forehead, killing her instantly. Within an hour of the Rosemead home invasion, Ramirez pulled 30-year-old Tsai Lian Veronica out of her car in Monterey Park, shot her twice with a 22 caliber handgun, and fled. She was pronounced dead upon arrival at the hospital. The two murders and an attempted third in a single day attracted extensive coverage from news media, who dubbed the attacker, described as curly-haired with bulging eyes and wide-spaced rotting teeth, the walk-in killer and the valley intruder. On March 27, 1985, Ramirez entered a home that he had burglarized a year earlier just outside of White California at approximately two AM and killed the sleeping Vincent Charles Zazara, age sixty-four, with a gunshot to his head from a twenty two caliber handgun. Vincent's wife, Maxine, age forty four, was awakened by the gunshot, and Ramirez beat her and bound her hands while demanding to know where her valuables were. While he ransacked the room, Maxine escaped her bonds and retrieved a shotgun from under the bed, which she was unaware was not loaded. She pulled the trigger just after he turned around and saw her. This infuriated Ramirez and he shot her three times with the twenty two, killing her then fetched a large carving knife from the kitchen. He would then mutilate her body by cutting an inverted cross into her chest. He then removed her eyes with the knife and placed them in a jewelry box. He attempted to have sex with her body but he found himself so shaken by her attempting to shoot him that he was unable unable to achieve an erection. He took the jewelry box with her eyes when he left, and he kept it at his apartment as a souvenir until his arrest. Vincent and Maxine's bodies were discovered by their son Peter. Ramirez had left footprints from a pair of Avia sneakers in the flower beds, which the police photographed and cast. This was virtually the only evidence that the police had at the time. Bullets found at the scene were matched to those found at previous attacks, and the police determined that a serial killer was at large. On May 14, 1985, Ramirez returned to Monterey Park and entered the home of Bill Doy, aged 66, and his disabled wife Lillian, aged 56. Surprising Bill in his bedroom, Ramirez shot him in the face with a twenty two semi semi-automatic pistol as he went for his own handgun. After beating the mortally wounded man into unconsciousness, Ramirez entered Lillian's bedroom, bound her with thumb cuffs, then raped her after he had ransacked the home for valuables. Bill died of his injuries while in the hospital. On the night of May 29, 1985, Ramirez drove a stolen car to Monrovia and stopped at the house of Mabel Bell, aged 83, and her disabled sister Florence Lang, aged 81. Finding a hammer in the kitchen, he bludgeoned and bound Lang in her bedroom, then bound and bludgeoned Bell before using an electrical cord to shock the women. After raping Lang, he used Bell's lipstick to draw the satanic pentagram symbol on her thighs as well as on the wall of both bedrooms. The women were found two days later, alive but comatose and critically injured. Belle later died of her injuries in the hospital. The next day, Richard drove the same car to Burbank and snuck into the home of Carol Kyle, age 42. At gunpoint, he bound Kyle and her 11-year-old son with handcuffs, then ransacked the house. He released Kyle to discreet to direct him to where the family's valuables were. He then raped her repeatedly. Ramirez also repeatedly ordered her not to look at him, telling her at one point that he would cut her eyes out. He fled the scene after retrieving the child from the closet and binding the two together again with handcuffs. On the night of July 2, 1985. He drove a stolen car to Arcadia and randomly selected the house of Mary Louise Cannon, aged 75, a widowed grandmother. After quietly entering the home, he found her asleep in her bedroom. He bludgeoned her into unconsciousness with a lamp and then stabbed her to death using a 10-inch butter knife from her kitchen. Ramirez repeatedly stabbed her body after she was already dead. She was found dead at the scene. On July 5, 1985, Ramirez broke into a home in Sierra Madre and bludgeoned 16-year-old Whitney Bennett with a tire iron as she slept in her bedroom. After searching in vain for a knife in the kitchen, he tried to strangle the girl with a telephone cord. He stated that he was startled to see electrical sparks emanate from the cord, and when his victim began to breathe, he fled the house believing that Jesus Christ had intervened and saved her. Bennett survived the savage beating and attempted strangulation, although 478 stitches were required to close the lacerations to her scalp. On July 7, 1985, Ramirez burglarized the home of Joyce Lucille Nelson, age 60, in Monterey Park. Finding her asleep on her living room couch, he beat her to death by stomping on her face repeatedly. A shoe print from his sneaker was left and printed on her face. After cruising two other neighborhoods, he returned to Monterey Park and chose the home of Sophie Dickman, age 63. Ramirez assaulted and handcuffed Sophie at gunpoint, attempted to rape her, and stole her jewelry. When she swore to him that he had taken everything of value, he told her to, quote, swear on Satan. On July 20th, 1985, Ramirez purchased a machete before driving a stolen Toyota to Glendale, California. He randomly chose the home of Leila Needing, age 66, and her hus- husband, Maxon, age 68. He burst into the sleeping couple's bedroom and hacked them with the machete, then killing them with shots to the head from a 22 caliber handgun. He further mutilated their bodies with the machete before robbing the house of valuables after quickly fencing the stolen items from the needing residence. Miras drove to Sun Valley, California at approximately four fifteen a m He broke into the home of the Kavanath family. He shot the sleeping Cherong Kavanath. I butchered that name. I know I did. In the head with a 25 caliber handgun killing him instantly he then repeatedly raped and beat the wife he bound the couple's eight-year-old son before dragging him around the house to reveal the location of any valuables which he stole during his assault he demanded that she swear to satan that she was not hiding any money from him on august 6 1985 richard drove to northridge and broke into the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson. He crept into the bedroom, startled Virginia, age 27, and he shot her in the face with the 25 caliber semi-automatic handgun. He then shot Chris in the neck and attempted to flee. Chris fought back while avoiding being hit by two more shots during the struggle before Ramirez managed to escape. The couple survived their injuries. On August 8th, 1985, Richard drove a stolen car to Diamond Bar, California, and he chose the home of Sakina Abawath, age 27, and her husband, Elias, age 31. Sometime after 2.30 a.m., he entered the house and he went into the master bedroom. He instantly killed the sleeping Elias with a shot to the head. He then handcuffed and beat Sakina. Sakina, while forcing her to reveal the locations of the family's jewelry, he then brutally raped her. He repeatedly demanded that she swear on Satan that she would not scream during his assaults. When the couple's 3-year-old son entered the bedroom, Ramirez tied the child up and they continued to rape her. After Ramirez left the home, Sakina untied her son and sent him to the neighbors for help. Ramirez who had been following the media coverage of his crimes, left Los Angeles and headed to San Francisco. On august 18, nineteen eighty-five, he entered the home of Peter and Barbara Pan. He shot the sleeping Peter, aged sixty six in the temple, with a twenty five caliber handgun, which killed him instantly. He then beat and sexually assaulted Barbara, aged sixty two, before shooting her in the head and leaving her for dead. At the crime scene, Ramirez used lipstick to scrawl a pentagram and the phrase, Jack the Knife, on the bedroom wall. Ramirez again left a shoe print at the scene that detectives detective discovered and matched to a specific pair of Avia shoes that was not common at the time. Lead detectives Frank Salarino and Gil Carleo, who contributed to Netflix's Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, contacted the manufacturer of Avia shoes and were able to retrieve the soles. Upon the discovery of the make and distribution across the United States, only six of them existed in the men's size eleven and a half, with five of them shipped to locations in Arizona and one shipped to a shoe store in Los Angeles. It was evident that one pair of its size and kind in the state of California then belonged to Ramirez. When it was discovered that the ballistics and shoe print evidence from the Los Angeles crime scenes matched the pan-crime scene, San Francisco's then-mayor Dianne Feinstein divulged the information, including the gun caliber, in a televised press conference. This leak infuriated the detectives in the case, as they knew the killer would be following media coverage, which gave him the opportunity to destroy crucial, crucial forensic evidence. Ramirez, who had indeed been watching the press, dropped his size of 11 and a half via sneakers over the side of the Golden Gate Bridge that night. He remained in the area for a few more days before heading back to Los Angeles. On August 24, 1985, Ramirez traveled 76 miles south of Los Angeles in a stolen orange Toyota to Mission Viejo. That night, he arrived at the home of James Ramiro, Jr., who had just returned from a family vacation to Rosario Beach in Mexico. Ramiro's son, 13-year-old James Ramiro III, happened to be awake. While his family was asleep, James went outside of the house to retrieve a pillow inside of a truck, which was locked. When he was outside, he heard a rustling noise. Assuming that it was just an animal, James went to investigate the noise, but to not notice anything out of the ordinary. James then went into his garage to begin working on his minibike before hearing Ramirez's footsteps outside the house. Thinking that there was a prowler, James, after observing Ramirez through his bedroom window, went to wake his parents, and Ramirez fled the scene. James raced outside and noted the color, make, and style of the car, as well as a partial license plate number. Ramiro contacted the police with this information, believing James had chased away a thief. After this encounter, Ramirez broke into the house of Bill Carnes, aged thirty, and his fiancee Inez Erickson, aged twenty nine, through a back door. Ramirez entered the sleeping couple's bedroom and awakened Carnes when he cocked his twenty five caliber handgun. He shot him three times in the head before turning his attention to Erickson. Ramirez told her that he was the Night Stalker and forced her to swear she loved Satan as he beat her with his fists and bound her with neckties from the closet. After stealing what he could find, Ramirez dragged Erickson to another room before raping her. He then demanded cash and more jewelry and made her swear on Satan that there was no more. Before leaving the home, Ramirez told Erickson, Tell them the Night Stalker was here. Erickson untied herself and went to a neighbor's house for help. Surgeons removed two of the three bullets from Karn's head and he survived his injuries. Erickson gave a detailed description of the assailant to investigators, and police obtained a cast of Ramirez's footprint from the Ramiro house. The stolen Toyota was found abandoned on August 28th in Koreatown, Los Angeles, and police obtained a single fingerprint from the rearview mirror despite Ramirez's careful efforts to wipe the car clean of his prints. The print was positively identified as belonging to Ramirez, who was described as a 25-year-old drifter from Texas, with a long rap sheet that included many arrests for traffic and illegal drug violations. The identification of Ramirez's print was described as a near miracle as the system used to identify him was recently installed, as well as the fact that the system contained the fingerprints of criminals born after January 1, 1960, only a month before Ramirez was born. On August 29, 1985, law enforcement officials decided to release a mugshot of Ramirez from a 1984 arrest for Grand Theft Auto to the media, and the Night Stalker finally had a face. At the police press conference, it was announced, We know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place that you can hide. On the night of June 27, 1985, 32-year-old Patty Elaine Higgins was murdered in her Arcadia home. The crime was not discovered until July 2nd, when she did not show up for work. Her attacker had sodomized, strangled, and slashed her throat. Ramirez was charged with murder and burglary in relation to Higgins' murder. However, the charges against him in the case were eventually dropped due to a lack of concrete physical evidence leaking the Higgins murder to the Night Stalker crimes. Based on a statement Ramirez made to an investigator, He is also a suspect in the San Francisco double murder of Christina and Mary Caldwell. The Caldwell sisters were found stabbed to death in their Telegraph Hill apartment on February 20, 1985. While incarcerated, Ramirez openly bragged to a prison officer and other inmates about having killed more than 20 people. On August 30, 1985, Ramirez took a bus to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother unaware that he had become the lead story in virtually every major newspaper and television news program across California. After failing to meet his brother due to him not being home, Ramirez returned to Los Angeles early on the morning of August 31st. He walked past police officers who were staking out the bus terminal in hopes of catching the killer should he attempt to flee on an outbound bus and into a convenience store in East Los Angeles. After noticing a group of elderly Hispanic women fearfully identifying him as El Matador, literally, the killer in Spanish, Ramirez saw his face on the front page of the newspaper and fled the store in a panic. After running across the Santa Ana freeway, he attempted to carjack an unlocked Ford Mustang, but was pulled out by an angry resident, Faustino Pinion. Ramirez then ran across the street and attempted to take car keys from Angelina de la Tour, the woman's husband. Manuel de la Torre witnessed the attempt and struck Ramirez over the head with a fence post in the pursuit. A group of over ten residents formed and chased Ramirez down Hubbard Street in Boyle Heights. The group of citizens forced and held Ramirez down and relentlessly beat him. At around 8 a.m., police were called over a disturbance in the area with few details with indications of a fight. Police quickly arrived at the 3700 block of Hubert and found that Ramirez was severely beaten and unarmed and took him into custody. The crowd grew to several hundred people and was becoming unruly towards Ramirez, and responding officer Andy Ramirez, no relation stayed behind while officer jim kaiser drove ramirez to the hollenbeck police station jury selection for the trial began on july 22nd 1988 at his first court appearance ramirez raised a hand with a pentagram drawn on it and yelled hail satan on august 3rd 1988 the los angeles times reported that some jail employees overheard Richard's planning to shoot the prosecutor with a gun, which Ramirez intended to have smuggled into the courtroom. Consequently, a metal detector was installed outside, and intensive searches were conducted on people entering. On August 14th, the trial was interrupted because one of the jurors, Phyllis Singletary, did not arrive at the courtroom. Later that day, she was found shot to death in her apartment the jury was terrified, wondering if Ramirez had somehow directed this event from inside his prison cell, and whether or not he could reach other jurors. However, it was ultimately determined that Ramirez was not responsible for their death, as she was shot and killed by her boyfriend, who later committed suicide with the same weapon in a hotel. The alternate juror, who replaced Singletary, was too frightened to return to her home. On September 20, 1989, Ramirez was convicted of all 43 charges, 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. During the penalty phase of the trial, on November 7th, he was sentenced to death in California's gas chamber. He stated to reporters after the death sentences, Big deal. Death always went with the territory see you in Disneyland the trial cost 1.8 million dollars which at the time made it the most expensive murder trial in the history of California until it was surpassed by the OJ Simpson murder case in 1994 by the time of the trial Ramirez had fans who were writing him letters and paying him visits beginning in 1985 Doreen LaJoy wrote him nearly 75 letters during his incarceration. In 1988, Ramirez proposed to her, and on October 3, 1996, they were married in California's San Quentin State Prison. For many years before Ramirez's death, LaJoy stated that she would commit suicide when Ramirez was executed. However, LaJoy eventually broke ties with Ramirez in 2009, after DNA confirmed that he had raped and murdered 9-year-old Mei Luang. By the time of his death in 2013, Ramirez was engaged to a 23-year-old writer. On August 7, 2006, Ramirez's first round of state appeals ended unsuccessfully when the California Supreme Court upheld his convictions and death sentence. On September 7, 2006, the California Supreme Court denied his request for a rehearing. Ramirez had additional appeals pending until the time of his death. Psych- Psychiatrist Michael H. Stone describes Ramirez as a made psychopath as opposed to a born psychopath. He says that Ramirez's schizoid personality disorder contributed to his indifference to the suffering of his victims and his untreatability. Stone also stated that Ramirez was knocked unconscious and almost died on multiple occasions before he was six years old and as a result later developed temporal lobe epilepsy, aggressivity and hypersexuality. Ramirez died of complications secondary to B-cell lymphoma at Marion General Hospital in Greenbrae, California on June 7, 2013. He also had been affected by chronic substance abuse and chronic hepatitis C infection. Our final story comes from yourghoststories.com and it is called Our First House. My husband and I have been together for four years and we live in one of his mother's rentals, watching over the property. When we first moved in together, before we were married, we opted to live with another couple to help with rent. Our house was about a 100 years old, and it had three bedrooms, one of which had just been added within the past 50 years. The floors were sinking, and the house itself needed a good all-over cleaning. My female friend and I decided about five days before we moved in, that we were going to stay the night and clean it without our boyfriends there to distract us. That was the night that I realized that we were not going to be living in the house alone. I was in the bathroom, trying to bleach the bathtub and the sinks while my friend was out in the kitchen trying to get the cabinets cleaned. She came running into the bathroom. When I looked up at her, she was soaking wet with sweat and she was as white as a ghost. I asked her what was wrong. Did she find a bug or something? She couldn't hardly talk to me. I got her to calm down, and she finally told me that she had heard something coming from the room that had been added on. I shook it off, and I told her that it was probably the guys trying to scare us, or the kids that walk up and down the street. I got her to calm down enough that she went back to the kitchen to continue cleaning. I was scrubbing the bathtub when I saw a woman out of the corner of my eye. I didn't even look up, I just thought it was my friend again, and I said, Quit worrying, nothing is going to happen. Go on and finish cleaning, and when I get done with this, I will come out there and help you. When I didn't hear a reply, I looked up and noticed that there was no one in the bathroom. I finished up with the bathroom and I walked into the kitchen. She was on the other side of the kitchen and wouldn't even turn around and face the door that led to the new bedroom. I told her to stop being scared even if there was something in the house it wouldn't harm us it would just try to scare us to get us to leave for some reason that was the only encounter that we had that night i figured that if it was something it would have showed itself more when it was just us it wasn't until all of us moved in that it really started to pick up and they started to make themselves more known our shower was a single with a glass door I took a shower one night and noticed that there was a male figure sitting on the side of the tub facing the shower looking in. I giggled because I thought it was my boyfriend, but when I opened the shower door he was gone. That same night, my friend asked me, after our boyfriends went to bed, if I noticed anything strange in the bathroom. I waited to hear what she had to say and it was the same thing that had happened to me. Every night after that, we always had a male companion in the bathroom although he never spoke and never made any attempt to communicate or harm us. We started having my stepson on an every other weekend basis, about a month and a half after we moved in. His room was to be the new bedroom. He refused to even go into the room. He wanted to sleep in the living room on the sofa bed. I agreed to keep him happy, but I couldn't figure out why he didn't want to sleep in his own room. I decided the next night, that we didn't have him, I would sleep in the room. That Monday night, my boyfriend had to go out of town for work, so I decided that would be the night that I would sleep in my stepson's room. It creeped me out a little, but I thought that it was just what my friend had said and my stepson not wanting to sleep in there. I thought my mind playing tricks on me. It was about an hour after I got to sleep that I felt a little hand on my hand. Shaking me, like trying to get me to wake up. I sat up, but I didn't notice any children in the room. I turned on my stepson's nightlight, because by this time I was freaked out. I laid down, trying to go back to sleep, and was looking at the wall. On the wall, you could clearly see the shadow of a little girl with pigtails, dancing. He looked around the room, and he couldn't see her anywhere. Only on the wall as a shadow. After that night, no one in the house had witnessed anything except for the perveter in the bathroom and the occasional woman out of the corner of your eye. I, myself, kept seeing this little girl, but only in shadows. She never tried to talk, but there would be nights that I had this feeling that I needed to go to my stepson's room and check on him, knowing that he wasn't there. When I would reach the door, his rocking horse would be moving and then just stop. We never found out what happened in the house, and we moved shortly after that. When we left, the house itself just felt peaceful. My husband thinks that maybe it was just my presence there that made the girl feel happy and comforted. I'm still not sure, but I would, would like to know what everyone else thinks. It might have been. I'm hoping someone will help me and comment on what they might think. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. I hope that everyone enjoyed the stories. And if you did, could you please rate and review on Spotify and Apple podcasts? A five-star rating really helps others to find us. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. Thank you in advance for subscribing on YouTube and helping me to reach my goal of 500 subscribers. If you do enjoy the show please consider helping to support the show by joining us on Patreon with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. And also, once again, thank you everybody for listening and helping me to reach 50,000 total plays. It's a number that I never thought that I would reach. But thank you all for listening and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved.